Hi, this is Kenneth Height, and you're listening to the Miskatonic University Podcast. Go Pods! It is a center for higher learning. It is a place with centuries of secrets in its shadowed halls. This is where you have come to learn the mysteries of the cosmos. Welcome to the Miskatonic University Podcast. We'll teach you things you can't unlearn. Brought to you by Cryptocurium.com. Hello, and welcome to the Miskatonic University Podcast, episode 68. This is the podcast dedicated to Call of Cthulhu and other horror and Lovecraft-related role-playing games. I'm Keeper Dan. And I'm Keeper John. In this episode, we go through the wealth of great stuff in the Call of Cthulhu 7th edition. And I'm Keeper Chad. For our main topic, more 7th edition talk. And then we'll have some more, and with a side of more 7th edition. We're doing it for the whole episode. And we're going to start things off with the Campus Crier. Miskatonic University Campus Crier. Campus Crier's Miskatonic U student paper. Here's going to go through feedback for the podcast and any news to share. This episode's recorded December 14th, 2014. And to start us off, thought we'd bring in a mention of the father of Call of Cthulhu, Sandy Peterson. His Cthulhu Wars board game has now gone multilingual. Awesome. Nice. So, yep, he he's on a, a global conquering spree, <laughs> and there are separate Kickstarters for language packs for German, Spanish, and French. Nice. Very cool. I, I unfortunately, was not able to uh, afford to support and uh, be a backer of the uh, English version. Does, does anyone know, has the English started shipping yet, or... I don't think quite yet, but it's very, very soon. Okay. I have to touch base with a buddy of mine who did uh, back that. So at least I I know of one copy that'll be local that I can (laughs) play. Nice. Nice. Yeah. I I actually did back it for like a dollar. So that way, yeah, I could uh, get the updates. And so I'll, I get, you know, notified whenever they do stuff and they've been showing lots of pictures from like trips out to the factory and just showing the progress very clearly of uh, where it is and like stacks of unfolded boxes and stacks of manuals and it's really kind of cool that's awesome nice yeah that's a great one way to keep the backers fully informed that's yeah. awesome mm-hmm. i like the uh the forty thousand dollars was the goal <laughs> and uh, they pulled in 1.4 million in the end. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if you have Sandy set something up and design it. You know, it 
it's going to work well. I've played it. It's a fantastically fun game. I and forgot that you played it. You, you played it um, the Gen Con before. 2013. Yep. Yeah. Wow. Mm. Yep. I got to play it with Paul Fricker, with Sandy running the game, and a couple other Gen Con attendees, and it was awesome. Nice. That's awesome. Yeah. Then there's... This is going to be basically the all-crowdfunding uh, crier. Yeah, right. Just looking Pretty through much. this, I'm like, wow, all, every one of these. And it's not like anybody's ever scra- scrapped for uh, scrap for cash this time of year. Oh, no. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, everyone's just got plenty of extra. But next up is our friend Brett Kramer. He is now an official Chaosium licensee, and he's going full bore in the Arkham Gazette. Issue 3 is funding through Kickstarter. Yeah. And he has uh, well passed funding and now smashing through uh, stretch goals. Yes, indeed. Uh, Let's see. The last stretch goal unlocked. He's working on 3,500 now. Mm -hmm. A few days uh, left. This thing goes until... It's got 15 days left as of um, podcast time. Uh, the just unlock. Oh yeah, the thing that I just love this. The thing that was just unlocked is this um, scenario by Kevin Ross, who wrote the book on Kingsport, mm. uh, is doing a scenario called the Wig- Wizard of Kingsport, and um, it's probably going to have some kind of witchy. Um, yeah. Well, you know, bent because of uh, issue number three. The theme of it is is witches and it just looks awesome. And I, I love the Kingsport setting and Kevin Ross's work. So I'm super excited that got unlocked. Plus the, uh, stuff that we're getting from a previous one that I'm looking forward to seeing it is that we're getting a PDF pack from Dean Englehart with like prop type stuff. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Yep. You can see a preview of these props. They, they look great. The, what do you call it? Mast, not a masthead, but a um, front page banner of the Kingsport Chronicle, which is great. Mm-hmm. There's actually already one in an MRP book uh, in a pack mm-hmm. by Miskatonic um, River Press, uh, HPLHS. Um, did oh, the Historical Society, yeah. Yeah, they did props for MRP, uh, but this will be a new a new Kingsport Chronicle one, plus uh, Arkham Gazette, Arkham Transcript. That's interesting. Um bunch of papers which is fun because yeah, you can the then create Courier. your own <laughs> i know <laughs> bolton republican yep i love it there's also the autopsy of walter gilman that sounds quite interesting a little prop document from <laughs> yeah price yeah that's gonna be a lot of fun to see yep yeah and and uh print on demand for issue three was the first stretch goal so what he's gonna do is put that up on i believe uh, drive through RPG as having an option for print on demand. So that way, if you want a printed copy of it, you can get it. Very cool. You know, cause it is a game supplement. So why sure. not? Sure. Yeah, definitely. I think print on demand is a great way to go for sort of, you know, if you're not going to have a lot of overhead and you try to keep your, keep your company. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and yeah, I mean, $7 gets you a copy of issue three of the Gazette, so, Mm -hmm. in PDF. And these are, we're also going to get some refurbished back issues, which I think is great. 
Yeah. Some new layout work. Yes. Gussy them up. So this is gonna this is really shaping up to be kind of a serious thing. I mean, not that it wasn't serious before, but it's it's going from garage level to you know semi pro prosumer. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Hopefully we'll be able to uh have a conversation with Brett on the show soon and uh you know just oh, kinda talk about great. everything that's going on with that. So Sounds good. That'll be great. Then next up we've got a kicks or an Indiegogo project for a comic book. Hmm. This is a it looks like a black and white comic project that features a former wrestler discovering he is the key to an ancient prophecy that will bring about Cthulhu. Nice. <laughs> really? Oh, wow. So it's a very interesting art style there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, lots of texturing. Yep. And quite abstract, very uh, indie comic. Yeah, yeah, it's very indie comic. Yeah. Let's see, at the beginning of the description, I'm a stay-at-home dad. In my spare time, I've written and drawn a 40-page one-shot comic. So it's not like this is like a an ongoing to have to deal with. It's This is a nice little one-shot. It does look really interesting. The art looks like, yeah. you know, there's a lot to look at. You can kind of drill down. I bet, the, uh, I bet this guy's art style would actually work really well for Dreamlands, too. Mm, yeah. Because it's kind of trippy and Very abstract. a little psychedelic. Yeah. yeah. Yep, yep. Mm-hmm. Well, let's see. How are they funding? Oh, 50 pounds of 3,000. So a little ways to go. But still, yeah. six, like, nearly 60 days. <clears throat> yeah. It, they just started it, like, I think this week. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's uh, just a neat little project I ran across. It's good you're getting some of the Indiegogo stuff. I haven't been searching that, you know, as much for random things. Yeah. Well, I, a little secret on how I find a lot of these things for the crier is that I have Google Alerts set up mm. with certain tags like Lovecraft... Cthulhu, mm-hmm. Call of Cthulhu, Chaosium, and so I get those emailed to me on a regular basis. Right. And those are how I find a lot of crier stuff. Hmm. And it works. <laughs> Just looking ahead, speaking of yes. wrestlers. <laughs> yep, yes. the next one has an actual wrestler. Former. To hell. There's going to be a short film starring Rowdy Roddy Piper. Versus Cthulhu, <laughs> called Portal to Hell, mm. and I just this looks so much fun. <laughs> yeah. Oh my god, that's great. <laughs> oh man, uh, please please go and look at the trailer, guys, because <laughs> I don't even have the sound on, and uh, there's just some awesome awesome shots here. Yeah, obviously. Yeah. Kind of the, parody the, level. Oh, oh boy. Yeah, yeah they, the guys that made this, they've done a bunch of other things already and just weird, bizarre, funny stuff. And that's what this is. This is intended to be a, like a horror comedy. So think Evil Dead 2 or Army of Darkness kind of like no you know, silly but cool. Right. Very cool. You know, okay. I'm, I'm hoping that they can push it past the... Uh, the funding goal, they're still a little bit short with 13 days left. Yeah. So I'm, you know, I'm crossing my fingers because I really want to see this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let's 
hilarious. Oh, we're doing our part to help spread the word. So please help us to get Roddy Piper versus Cthulhu. <laughs> and then there's a uh, Kickstarter that I actually found out about this while listening to Ken and Robin talk about stuff. And this was one of their sponsored oh, yeah. uh, bits. Right. And it's a modern investigative game that it basically sounds like take the general concept of how Trail of Cthulhu works with the drives and motivations and all and made it taken the concept and put it onto a completely new game engine. Hmm. Yeah. And so this is something original, I think. Yeah, it looks like it. And it looks like they have um, proprietary D6s that have graphics on them. So I don't know how that works, but, you know, it's yeah, sort of like fudge, except if you have, I mean, it's just not numerical at all. It's all icons. Yep. Yeah. That you can uh, print and stick graphics. So you print out the, uh, the funky labels onto sticker paper, and then you can cut and stick them onto your dice. Yeah. Looks looks like pretty rules light uh, or classic rules light. If you look at the character sheets down below, they're yeah, yeah, they're they're not terribly extensive. Yeah, well, I want to play it. it. Looks like fun. Yeah, looks like they're coming along nicely. Then we got an update from Oscar from Golden Goblin Press mm. about the state of their international backers uh, shipments for Tales of the Crescent City. And unfortunately, there's been some uh, major issues and delays because the uh, company that Oscar was working with for international distribution has kind of fallen off the map and stopped communicating. So it's very odd. Yeah, Oscar's using strong language here. He says, unfortunately, I'm slowly coming to realize that once again, I have been lied to by my international redistributor. Yeah. And uh, if this is true, um, we have no reason to believe otherwise. This affects a lot of companies who who uh, go through this company for yeah. fulfillment or through re- redistribution. I mean, and um, it could really hurt a lot of small gaming businesses. So oh the MRP project that is still yet to um, to be uh, come out of uh, punk town which we talked about a while ago um is is one such project even though the company's um pretty much out of it they're you know they're following through with their commitments on that um but it's stuck in limbo and um other did, companies did punk town already ship in the states i, I don't believe so i don't think so okay because for for golden goblin Crescent City has already shipped statewide, you know, stateside. Yeah. So this is just yeah. impacting the uh, international orders. Yeah. Right, but then right, it, it, and you're right, but um, uh, as far as on the customer side, but the thing is that it could actually make Golden Goblin go under. Gemini Christmas. Because they spent so much money sending stuff. Sure. That then isn't forwarded on. I mean, this is all this, you know items and stuff it's sort of like what we did i believe where um you sort of do a chain you know one person comes up with say the sculptures or or maybe they're the last person to send stuff out so you send books to that person right 
or, or materials to that person. Yeah. And they send everything all at once. Well, that's what's happening here where merchandise and, and stuff is stuck in, in the region. Yeah. Somewhere in the UK, there's a great big shipping crate full of Tales of the Crescent City. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. And those need to be redistributed out to <clears throat> UK and other international backers. And there's been no communication from the guy who runs Chronicle City to find out, you know, what's going on. Yeah. Which is really bizarre because whenever I looked up the name, found out that this is like a well-established person in the gaming industry. He founded Cubicle 7. Mm-hmm. This is uh, Angus Branson. Yeah. Uh, Abranson or Abranson. I don't know how to pronounce it. Abranson. So there's your Google search, guys. <laughs> um, you want to look this guy up. And on social media, I did a little digging, and on social media, it looks like um, they were running their own Kickstarter, um, but communication stopped right around Halloween. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I around that point, I couldn't find anything past that that had any form of... Uh, contact so it, it's like angus was just kind of swallowed by a dimensional hole or something mm-hmm. and just vanished if there's anybody out there in the uk who knows him you know maybe knock on his door and f- make sure he's okay i mean this is bizarre yeah it's a mess we're hoping that it get, get, gets cleaned up there are a lot of stakeholders in play and i'm sure that um, there's a lot of pressure being brought down so we'll uh we'll keep an eye on this and yeah talk about it i did verify that call of cthulhu 7th edition and uh horror and the orange express shipping is not affected because chaosium is not going through chronicle city for those Mm -hmm. okay well it just seemed like we should circle back a lot has happened since the last time we did a show and uh, i think the last show we did we talked about the seventh edition we had um a uh, a listener write in with frustrations about um about progress but also about the tone of of a recent update uh, that it hadn't been sort of strongly worded enough uh sympathetic enough well since then seventh edition seventh edition since then, Chaosium has put out uh, an apology letter that begins with an apology. And um, it seemed only fair that we circle back and, and cover that they're, you know, that they uh, heard someone, whether it was us or other people in the community, and responded. And I think it was a good move. Yeah. Yeah. It's very heartfelt and well written. And, uh, you know, and as a backer, I appreciate seeing that. You know, I wasn't one of, I'm not one of the backers who really is all that concerned about the delays for 7E. I just personally, I'll get it when I get it. I'm fine with that. You know, I, I agree. I, I, uh, I'm disappointed that I missed being uh, able to attend uh, that previous show. I, I don't even know, for myself personally, I don't even know if an apology was necessary. Um, you know, I get it that that people are out there saying, "Hey, I'm I'm financially invested in this. I, I'm a backer." Well, you know what? There are people who, you know, professionally in in the real world of of real 
business economics. They are professional backers of, of different projects. You know, they, they, they support, you know, new software that's being developed or a new product that's being created. And the nature of the business is that there are progresses and delays and you move forward until you get to the end of this, you know, until the end of the, uh, end of the project. And, uh, my assumption is that, um, most people who are, you know, being these, uh, backers of a, of a very new business model for the RPG industry that's, you know, doing Kickstarters and stuff like that. They're not accustomed to what is in real life, what happens for, for people who are uh, financial stakeholders in a project. And I mean, this, this is something new that mm-hmm. the RPG industry is going through with the, you know, with crowdfunding, but this is not something that's new for a regular business. And, uh, I, I think people just need to kind of cool, you know, just kind of calm down a little bit and just, you know, wait for the regular updates. Now, you know, if you had a scenario similar to what we were just talking about where there's, you know, no communication and you don't know what's happening with, uh, you know, product that's been in transit and shipping and that kind of thing, that's one scenario. But when you have regular updates and you're getting, you know, uh, progress reports on what's happening, even if there's a delay on dates that, that, you know, were, were estimated and, 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 you know, in a lot of these cases, as it is in, in real life business, these dates are what you hope to hit and best case scenario you hit. Uh, but you know, there are many instances on, on why you've got legitimate delays and why, you know, it's a moving target. Why that, that target date moves. Um, uh, so, you know, okay, great. Thank you, Mike and Chaosium for, you know, for sending out that apology, but from my point of view, completely unnecessary. And, um, I think perspective needs to be, uh, adjusted from, uh, from the backers side. And I say that as a backer, you know, I'm not just giving lip service. This is, I'm, I am mm-hmm. financially invested in this. And, you know, I, I have no, uh, issues with what's going on with, uh, uh, Chaosium or the seventh edition as, as it's been progressing. So maybe I'm in the minority, but, uh, I feel like, you know, I have a, a more realistic view of what to, uh, anticipate and expect as a financial backer. Well, we, and we had talked about that, um, in the last episode that, uh, expectations need to be adjusted on either side and this is a something in transition it's a new beast it's not like uh yeah. it's not like investors in a in a you know a shareholder company and it's not like retail so the, you know the, the, the yeah. two have to meet the middle yeah and i think it's partly one of the things that even mike addresses in the email was that this is a new model for chaosium particularly if Golden Goblin, for example, Oscar has no real difficulties managing to get everything on time and all that because he started with Kickstarter as the model. Chaosium's an older company, and they're having to unlearn how to produce in this new market and model. Mm-hmm. That, and, and they're that's also very doing valid, things. yes. 
Yeah, that's one of the points we we talked about, and it and it, it's it's yeah. also uh, for Golden Goblin. It's a much different scale. Like it's mm-hmm. it, yeah, very Golden much so. Goblin deserves props for delivering on time and communicating with backers. Oh, absolutely, right, absolutely. But they're also dealing with things. They also didn't say let's do this in full color and, and you know increase the page count. You know, for each of their their stuff, they they're they're keeping the goals quite contained and. Um, Chaosium is doing something on a totally different scale, totally different yeah. numbers. Um, and they're, t- I, you know, it's, I just think it's good practice to, as a company, to take responsibility for delays and they have been doing that. And I think, um, this, this apology letter is, is an example of the kind of tone that one should strike. And I think they deserve credit for it. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really important to recognize, like, a few days after we covered that, um, uh, complaint, the one of the complaints was that the PDF was uh, late, uh, PDF release, and, the, and I think like two days after it was out, right? Yeah. Hmm. Yep. Then the PDF drop. So now it's out, and you know I think that helps yep. people. We officially have the books. Yeah. They're just not physical yet, but that's you know not anything Casium can do about it. That's all printers. So yeah, at least we can look at the rules now, and we can. We, I've I've even run a session already on. With using the oh, excellent! Yeah, that is awesome. It was really fun. Yeah. Then just a few quick uh, updates here. Uh, Arc Dream, the company behind uh, Delta Green and Unknown Armies, they did a Kickstarter that's now finished and funded uh, called Puppet Land. Yeah, the storytelling RPG of grim make believe. Hell yeah! I had no idea this existed until now. Yep. I'm a backer. It's my first uh, Kickstarter. And by the way, that's not that's because I now have a job and I'm at the point where I can start Kickstarting. So Arkham Gazette. You are all, you <laughs> are all grown my, up now. I know. So this is my first and uh, Arkham Gazette was my second. But um, yeah, I, I saw this and I was totally looking forward to it. It's kind of a seminal uh, artwork, uh, artwork, seminal uh, piece of game lore because it's it was a early iteration of the indie um indie game movement with um smaller rule sets and um all the various kind of storytelling elements that the indie game movement has now blossomed into but this came out in 1995 um the story game movement didn't really blossom until about 2000 or 99 or so so um I can't wait for this. It's a horror game. It involves puppets, which is both hilarious and terrifying. <laughs> I cannot wait to uh, get this in my hot little hands, and I will definitely be running it. Um, try to get an AP up because I just so looking forward to it. I'm scrolling down on this, looking at the different versions of the book binding, or it's like this is a really fascinating looking book. Yeah, yeah, it's beautiful. That's just weird. I love it. Yep. So this is a world where the I rem, I, I'm doing this from memory, but the um, it's a kind of land where everybody is puppets, a kingdom of puppets, and uh-huh. I'm not sure about the goal, but uh, the maker, you know, the sort of the maker of the puppets has died, so that throws the whole kingdom into chaos. The hmm. and the puppets are animated. Well, it's a role playing game. I mean, it's right. Are yeah. you, as a player character, are you playing an animated puppet? You are, yes, yes. Okay. Yep. 
in Puppet Land. Yeah, if they weren't, then just playing an in or inanimate object, yeah, well, not so much fun. I'm still trying to wrap my mind around <laughs> this. <laughs> it's a weird concept. It's totally weird, for I, sure. I, 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 my head is stuck, because every time I think of puppets or something like that, that, that commercial where the, the, the couple is on a blind date or something, and the guy goes, I'm into puppetry, and he holds up a puppet that looks exactly like his blind date, and he starts making out with this Muppet, you know, and, <laughs> and the girl goes, I'm out of here, and she walks away. The, I Just every time I think of the word puppet, that's what comes to my mind right now. So Wow. Okay. I'm having a hard time trying to. You're, you're a strange, twisted man. <sighs> it's nice. <laughs> <laughs> I sort of imagine a corrupted, terrifying version of uh, Mister Rogers' neighbor, neighborhood of make believe, <laughs> in which in, yeah. in which Mister Rogers has passed away, and oh, that is great! Yeah, everything gets darker and darker, and like Lady Elaine, mm-hmm. I don't know about you guys, but she totally freaked me out. The one with the cheekbones that is kind of a witch. Oh my god. Boomerang, yes. sumerang, yeah. tumerang. That is witch talk. She should have oh, been yeah. burned. And in, in my puppet land, when I run puppet land, she's going to be hunted down by a posse. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, that is hilarious. I forgot all about her. I was making trouble. Uh, then I also think of the movie Nine. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. I love that movie. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, that was really good, and the short film was excellent too. But uh, so yeah, that's that that's Puppet Land, which is done with funding, and you can't get in now that we've talked about it. Oh, that's right. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, sorry about that. I just well, I'm super <laughs> excited about it, and you'll hear about it later when I uh, pull out, start making puppets in my in my uh, apartment here, and show them to you all. <laughs> oh, excellent! I, I have a prediction that'll be right before you're single again. So yeah, out there, <laughs> start loading that apartment full of puppets. Yeah, Chad will be all by himself, him and his puppets again, <laughs> making out with the puppet version. Of, yeah, you know. <laughs> that's nice. There's one that one uh, campaign that still has four days to go as we're recording this. That's Silent Legions, a sandbox horror RPG. We mentioned this in the previous episode. And they have gone way mm. past their initial funding goal. Yep, they're at twelve thousand. They asked for yeah, they asked for three thousand five hundred. They're at twelve thousand six hundred. So yeah, they're doing quite nice, quite nicely. Yep, I like. And like it's concept. only got a few days left. Jump in mm-hmm. on it. And the, the last one, which has funded, and you can't get in on it, but uh, the Dracula dossier by Pelgrane has funded. Eightfold times more than it, it than was asked. Uh, this is Ken Heights' amazing rethinking of the Dracula mythos uh, brought forward into modern day in his Night Knights Black Agents Super Spies RPG. And I'm sure if you listen to this show, you probably listen to Ken and Robin talk about stuff, and they have talked about it plenty. But uh, <laughs> it's funded, and I would like to play it sometime. Yeah, I would love to just read through the unredacted uh, Dracula book. I mean, that just sounds fascinating to have it kind of retranslated as a spy novel. 
It's great. So, yeah, this is uh, going to be very, very neat. It makes me want to learn gumshoe better, you know. Mm-hmm. So, uh, next up, if I could, I just wanted to talk a little bit about the uh, Delta Green Shotgun Scenario Contest. Um, the contest is is over as far as the uh, acceptance of entries. Uh, we're now in the phase where voting will occur, and voting is only for members of the uh, Delta Green Yahoo group, the the mailing group. But it's 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 a it's not like it's a restricted group. If anyone is interested in, in joining uh, that group and then and then being able to cast a vote, you certainly may. Uh, if you look in our forums, uh, Ed Posing started a, a thread, or it's been going for a while now, uh, about this contest. And uh, now that we've moved into the new phase, uh, the there's a there's a website called the, the Fairfield Project, which he's he uses to post all of the uh, uh, entries. And this year has a I think it's I think I went through and counted I think it's a record breaking thirteen scenarios were, were submitted uh, for this contest and, and one of them is mine although I'm, I'm going to keep it to myself keep the title to myself because uh, that's the beautiful thing about this contest is it's all based in your voting is going to be based on the content and not the author nobody nobody knows ah. nobody knows who the author is every author's entry is anonymous and, nice. and and after the voting's all done, the the Fairfield Project website it'll be updated. The credits on every scenario will be updated, so then it'll it'll become clear on who wrote each scenario. But that again won't occur until after voting has closed. Uh, if I remember right, voting is going to run until December thirty first. Uh, so if anyone is interested in checking out these. Uh, uh, scenarios and again, most the, the they're supposed to be super short. They're the fifteen hundred word count is your guideline. If you go over fifteen hundred words, it skews the voting slightly. Uh, so you know, if you go over the word count, you get like less votes or something like that. It's like half votes. Uh, but I forget how all that works. But anyways, uh, but the voting will run until the thirty first. Then they'll shut down the poll. And uh, do the calculations to determine the winner. And I think this year they're going to go with uh, three places, you know, first, second, third. Uh, but anyway, mm-hmm. they'll, they'll take care of all that. But go, I, I encourage anyone, please go to our website, go to the forums, uh, uh, find in the uh, 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 other uh, other discussions, the open topics area of our forum. You'll see Ed Posing's uh, Delta Green uh, shotgun scenario entry. And uh, kind of read through that, and uh, the the more current entries, one of the more current ones has the uh, the links to the mailing group if you want to join. Uh, once you're a member, which, uh, which I don't think it takes any anything at all. I think you just simply say I want to join, and boom, you're in. You then have visibility to the uh, poll, and uh, you can vote in the poll. Obviously, read the scenarios first, though it should be fairly short. You know, most of them, most of the scenarios are. are fairly short so it doesn't take long to read through them and uh, vote for you know follow your heart vote for the one that you uh, that you like the best and then come january next year we can reapproach this subject and uh, see how you know we can find out how my scenario did in the uh, in the running and you know hopefully i 
you know, hopefully people just like it. I don't, I don't care if I, if I win or not, but it'd be neat, you know, so it's out there. Cool. Yeah, that is excellent. And we'll have a link to the Yahoo group, uh, sign up. So that way, if anybody's interested, go on out there. And from what I hear, this Yahoo group is one of the primary places where Delta Green is uh, covered. So. Yeah, as as a member myself now, I'm I'm waiting to to start getting some info. So that'll be cool. Cool. I've been wanting to do that for a couple of years and regret that I missed it. But uh, I know, me too. I, I've I've been wanting to do it, wanting to do it, and uh, uh, you know, Delta Green is in the process of of upgrading and and uh, mm. putting out their new rules, and there's already a beta of their new rules out. Uh, so I I kind of reference those, uh, you know. Well, I kind of looked at those rules. So I was like, yeah, I think I can write to this. So Cool. Well, good luck to you. Good luck to everyone, if that's possible. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Study the work of your school librarian, and perhaps you can secure permission to assist. All right. Well, for the um, card catalog this week, it's not really a an online resource, but it's a podcast about history that if you aren't listening to and you are a fan of uh, history in this game, you should listen to Backstory, which is actually um, the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities does it. I think it's it's on public radio, and I just found it over Thanksgiving break and started binge binge listening. It is awesome. Various topics, all kinds of uh, interesting things that could be used for games. You'll see a, a bunch of different titles. I would direct people to an episode called Bridge for Sale, Deception in America, and I will put that in the show notes. Um, it just talks about various cons and it and it starts out with the Fiji mermaid so all kinds of really great great history insight it's mostly you know they they only cover so much in a short amount of time and then you can look stuff up on your own but it's got a great three different historians they've got a 20th century person and a 19th century person and an 18th century person and they just kind of go through like that there's one on the history of time or to history of the clock there's uh, one that I just listened to about sort of the history of the wilderness in in the United States and what uh, you know the history of the Park Service and what it, what it really was all about at the time. It's very very cool stuff. Oh, that is cool. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, sources like this are really interesting. You know, just to kind of you know get get some background ideas on maybe setting or something like that. So that's cool. Yeah, exactly. So it's all American history. Um, How often do they? Uh, publish how long did the episodes run do they have a uh, on their website are you able to like search the catalog and, and cherry pick episodes if you're going to be doing research or you know mm-hmm. yep, oh, yeah absolutely i'm looking at that right now and yeah the uh i'm looking at the episode bridge for sale deception in america the one with the fiji mm-hmm. mermaid and i love the way they do their show notes yeah They've got different sections here. Oh, wow. They actually have each segment is playable as its own separate mm-hmm. file. Oh, that's great. They're using SoundCloud to host. And there's transcripts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, it's all searchable. They have transcripts of all the sections, songs from this episode, guest lists, the backstory of this episode. This is very, very well wow, done. This dates back to 2008. Wow. Yeah, they've been doing it for a while. Uh, lots and lots of episodes. I think that they do a couple a month, if I'm not mistaken. 
if you look at their archives, you can kind of tell, uh, you know, October 24th and 31st. No, it looks like maybe weekly. They miss one every once in a while. And the episodes, if I'm not mistaken, are, I wish I had my iPod. They're not that long. I think maybe an hour. You know, they're, it is a podcast, so they don't, they're not beholden to some particular yeah. time frame. Yeah, they don't have any specific, you know, super yeah. tight, but this is very, very cool. It's great. It's so many, so many ideas for for games. And also, I just feel like it's great to, to have a easy way to get into history because there's just knowing the context of things in this game is really nice. They, they often hit on the uh, things that happened in the 20s. Not that we're limited just to the classic era, but uh, it's lots of great insight for what's going on. I was looking to see if they had one on forensics of the 20s. I've always wanted to have a good uh, overview. Although 7th edition now has a nice overview of forensics in the 20s, come to think of it. That's the kind of thing that's super useful. Yeah. Okay. Well, this looks like a lot of fun. So yeah, if you're a, a, a GM that's wanting to have as much realism as possible in the historical aspects, it looks like this is going to be a huge resource for you. Yep. I would agree. That's very cool. Backstory radio. Okay. Then next up, uh, we wanted to have our cryptocurium uh, spot here. And this is actually something from that I had mentioned on the uh, Campus Crier Supplemental that I had put out that the Blackest Friday sale is apparently still ongoing and those items are still available so they didn't sell out yet so cool. you can jump in there and still get hold of these miniature Cthulhu idols Honestly, or the ornaments nice Yuletide Cthulhu ornament there yep that I've got awesome. one <laughs> and uh, it, it's hanging up from a shelf right here by my computer and it's a very nice it's big but it's a great looking piece because it doesn't have like a santa hat or anything like that on it it's it's just a nice looking display which can also be hung up on a tree mm -hmm. yeah it's a year-round ornament there yeah and they also have the uh, knitted cthulhu scarf uh which i, I have one yep. of those scarves and oh you are, do yeah they're awesome they are awesome nice uh, uh my plan is to eventually get a uh a, a fez so that someday when i go to a uh, a convention to run Cthulhu games. I'm going to wear a Cthulhu t-shirt. I'll have the scarf and a fez on. It'll be like rain mints, you know. I'll be uh, well adorned to uh, to be keepers. <laughs> but the, yeah, that, that knitted scarf is is really really nice, very warm, uh, and it's 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 beautifully made. I mean, it's it is not it's not cheap at all. I mean, it's 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 like it has like feels like a like a double layer to it it's really good excellent so yeah i was kind of surprised to look over there and see that they're still available so there probably aren't too many left of these particular items so jump in there and make use of it i mean even just getting a a little cthulhu idol for 12 bucks that's terrific yeah, i know uh, little gaming props cryptocurium was on my christmas <clears throat> list uh christmas gift list and it's already the materials have already been sent to the recipient, so... Oh, cool. You weren't <laughs> on the receiving end? No. You didn't, you didn't give your list to, to someone? Uh, hey, uh, click here. No, I didn't. <laughs> I didn't. It's a good idea, though. <laughs> Settle down now, class. It's time for your next lesson. Okay... 
Here's where we're going to go through the the new 7th edition books and pick out some uh, like favorite sections and things that we've uh, decided to do a little bit of extra research into. And this is going to be just kind of a, you know, 10,000 foot overview of what we were given by uh, by Chaosium over the last couple of weeks. Yes, man. But in general, mm-hmm. uh, I'm really happy with it product i just yes yes i'm not alone there um just really let's just talk about the aesthetics of it it's just really well done i feel like the the layout is smart there's not much graphical elements that are interfering with the readability at all it's it's Mm -hmm. really crisp and clear and yet there are some interesting elements on the sides of the edges of the pages yeah lots to look at i really like the little notes little kind of handwritten notes here and there that are um, sort of like sidebar elements, but they're, they're presented in a really interesting way. And man, the art is really cool. There's yeah. such a diversity of art styles in this, which is great, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm very pleased with how this came out. It's, as far as I'm concerned, this was totally worth the wait because they really nailed it. Yeah, I can't wait to, to get the physical book. Yeah, I'm just a, I, I prefer the physical over the digital, but man. To, to just kind of flip through this as a digital book and just go, oh, that just looks so cool. And yeah, I love that the uh, the graphical elements that they've done, unlike that that previous edition, which I know was didn't mimic a uh, an international edition as well that had like those burned out holes and the the the, the the burn looking edges and whatever on the pages. Oh, that. Yeah. They went a little bit extreme <clears throat> with that kind of so extreme. And, and, and it was, it just ate up so much of the real estate of the page. It was difficult to read. I found it difficult to read because you're trying to, you know, scroll your eye around those burn holes or, you know, you're not getting full use of, of the, uh, uh end pages. Cause you know, you're coming in an inch or two inches from the edge because of that graphical element and everything. But, this, you know, has a great two column, you know, look throughout the book. Art is, uh, is spaced everywhere. I mean, it, fe- it feels like damn near every page has something artistic to it, even if it's just a, uh, an artistic rendering of, of a sidebar kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, just, yeah. Or the little icon up in the corner at the top. Yeah. Yeah. The, that each chapter has its own different icon. So you can actually just kind of very quickly skim yeah. through yeah. and, literally where you are you can just kind of look at those in the upper corner and see that yeah i feel like the focus here has been that this is number one a reference book and i feel like they really got that this time this is really a resource a reference book that you need to quickly look something up Mm -hmm. that's much more in the forefront this time yeah and then at the beginning of each chapter we have the color double page Mm -hmm. spread the just a huge beautiful piece of art and uh right now i'm looking at chapter five beautiful nighttime scene and that's an interesting one some really disturbing Mm -hmm. imagery that reminds me of those uh valentine books that uh the lovecraft valentine editions yeah oh yeah yeah it's got a very similar look to that skeleton on the tree the way the shading is yeah absolutely Mm -hmm. yeah yeah i you know, the you can tell that they really put a lot of care into the layout, into the readability, and I bet this is going to be a very clean and easy book for going through, you know, as a keeper. I'm really looking forward to playing with this. Yep, me too. Yeah, for sure. So let's, you know, jump in and, and start uh, 
talking about some of the the specific bits that we picked out to kind of focus on a little bit in our uh, overview. So, John, you grabbed what yeah, was I've that? Yeah, I've got a few uh, in uh, Chapter 5, uh, which is uh, about the game system in general. Well, it covers the game system specifically, uh, but I'm going to cover a few of the uh, uh, pieces in there. Like uh, uh, one of the new elements that I really enjoyed, especially from our playtesting, is uh, pushing skill rolls. And I like the concept. So for those who are not familiar uh, with the pushing of a skill roll, it is the idea that your characters attempted to leverage one of their skills uh, and that skill you, you failed in your ability to uh, make that role. You may then choose to push that skill, which is to re-roll, but there's an issue with it. Uh, so, uh, and this is the element that I think is great is, uh, the keeper or the keeper through the assistance of the players as well come up with or design a, uh, a consequence. What would happen if you fail again because you're pushing and, uh, and, and you state that sometimes you, you explicitly state this, uh, bad thing will happen, uh, if you, uh, attempt to push the role and fail, or you could be vague and say, well, you know, you know, the, the, the villain, you know, you know, the, the human cultists, they might be able to catch up to you or, um, uh, they'll, they'll get an idea on where you're staying, you know, what hotel you're in or something like that. You know, whatever is a, uh, uh, a plausible end result, negative end result. If you should uh, fail that skill roll again. Uh, and sometimes it's something that happens immediately, and sometimes it it could be you know a, a, a negative result that that'll have further reper- repercussions down the line. Um, and so I was looking at this section. It, it does say that uh, the pushing of the role it would occur either seconds, minutes, or even hours after the uh, the first attempt of the role. And I'm I'm wondering again. This is all up to interpretation of, of the keeper who's running that game. But uh, for me, if I'm running a seventh edition game, I think I'm going to keep it to seconds and minutes. I don't know if I would go hours because I think if enough time passes other scenarios other, or other situations for that, for the scenario that that was the, uh, the need for that skill role, whatever that skill role was that you were uh, attempting, different conditions may have changed, making it a legitimate reason for it to be a, a completely new test, you know? Uh, mm-hmm. And it is uh, stating that this is not, and we should be clear on this, this is not a re-roll. This is not a, uh, uh, a metagaming mechanic where as a player, I throw the dice, I failed my, uh, skill attempt, and I say, I want to try that again. So let's say, for example, your character is leaping from a balcony to try and grab a chandelier to swing through a window. Um, and I make a jump skill roll, and I fail. I would not be able to say, I want to push that roll and do it again, because in in game, you know, in the flow of the game, that that pushed roll is a second attempt, 
which means my character would have landed down below. I would have missed the chandelier. I would have fallen down to the to the to the lobby or whatever below. Gone back up the stairs to the landing and tried to jump again. I mean, honestly, is your character going to do that? No, you know. And I, in 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 mid flight of jumping from the la- uh, from the uh, the landing out to the chandelier, you know, I'm not getting to do the reroll during mid flight. You know, uh, so there are, you know are situations where uh, pushing a roll uh, it is uh, applicable versus. Uh, what I'll talk about in a couple a couple minutes here, uh, spending of luck. Uh, so you know you need to be aware of that. That pushing a roll is not some sort of meta uh, re-roll of the dice. Does that make sense to you guys? Yeah, yeah. So if if I remember right, I can jump in that uh, you have to. It, the burden's on the player to justify whether it can be something can be pushed, and True. you have to describe how it's possible to push it and then the keeper makes a judgment of whether or not you could even do that. That's true. It's not, you know, a player does not automatically get to go. I I just want to push that role. No, you know, let's think about this. You know, what are you, you know, what is the logic? Why are you reattempting this? Um, And now that you have your justification for the reattempt before you roll, uh, they actually call it uh, foreshadowing, uh, uh, foreshadowing failure. Uh, before you do that reroll, let's discuss what the uh, possible uh, negative output would be if you fail again. You know, uh, and I, I'm reminded of of our playtest, and and I still I still love uh, telling this story when we were doing the playtest, and Chad's characters in the basement of this. Uh, dusty musty old house and there's cardboard boxes of papers and books and stuff all over the place and uh and he was trying to light a candle or a lantern or something of some sort and uh failed to uh to, i think you, you're failing to to get it lit and we were like well let's push that roll and, and do that again and someone said oh if if the fail happens um you drop it and it goes out or something like that I go, that's, that's not a failure. You know, you push that roll. If you fail that thing, you're starting a fire. You know, there's a, this is a, this is kindling. You're all surrounded by kindling. And, uh, and, and it was great because you, you pushed it and failed. <laughs> yeah. That's exactly what happened. Yeah. I think I was, it was actually a search or a spot hidden. That's thing. it. Yeah. That's and I happened to have a, yeah. Yeah. I happened to have a candle that we had just described. I found a candle and was going down to the basement and, I th- the fun thing about that was that um, as a group, I mean, you chimed in as another player to make it worse for me, which I, I, I think is great. Like, I, that's what I would, the kind of thing I would want to encourage in my own group. Actually, mm-hmm. did, I haven't delved into this. Did you notice if there was a, if that idea of getting suggestions from other people, did that make it in? Uh, so, yeah, here in the uh, uh, foreshadowing failure, uh, it does talk about, you know, by the keeper. Uh, but you know, uh, it also does say players are welcome to offer their own suggestions for consequences, especially when they come up uh, with scarier ones. So yeah, I yeah. appreciate that. That's it's right great. there. Right it's on. right there. It, Good. It, uh, another, if I if I can tell another anecdote, uh, I'm reminded of uh, Gen Con 2014 when we were doing a uh, a game and I was oh. running it. 
God, that was great. Yeah. Oh my God. So, uh, Corey, uh, one of our players, his, uh, his character is literally standing on a roof of a, of a house that's three stories tall. And the roof is made up of these, uh, clay, uh, tiles, you know, very like Spanish style tiles. And, uh, and he, it's very, it's very shaky. In fact, there was already evidence that, that some of those, uh, clay, uh, little shingles had already slid off of the roof and had fallen to the, uh, to the yard down below. And, uh, so Corey is standing up here and he's trying to maneuver. He's trying to collect some evidence, uh, that was up there and he had failed his role, uh, uh, to, to, to collect that evidence. And I said, you know, do you want to try it again? You know, and, and if you fail, you know, if you want to push that role, there's, there's likelihood that you're going to fall through the roof into the room below you and cause more tiles to fall off the, fall off the roof down to the ground below. And, uh, Chad's character <laughs> was just by happenstance, he was in the yard, you know, <laughs> down below. Uh, and, and so Corey's like, yeah, I, I want to push this role. And we, you know, we discussed what the, uh, foreshadowing of failure was. And he said, okay, let's push that role. So he made a second attempt. Uh, his character made a second attempt to try and gather some evidence and he pushed that role and he threw the dice and he failed again. And, and so he said, okay, you crashed through the roof. You, you land into the bedroom that was below more tiles slide off the roof. And uh, I had Chad make a a luck roll, which he failed. And I, he, his character looks up and goes, "What?" As it as he hears the <laughs> tiles coming, and it smashes him right in the bridge of the nose, and just hilarity ensued from there. But it was it was great, and I just loved that. You know, Corey had this opportunity to back off and just not uh, collect that evidence. Or go for it, you know, pushing that role in. Dagnamity, he pushed that role and went for it. So that was, that was awesome. I loved it. It's great. It's such a creative opportunity. It yeah. really is. And I'm, I'm really enjoying, uh, that mechanic. That's, that is one of my most favorite, uh, new additions is, is, uh, pushing roles. So yeah, I agree. Uh, another, uh, mechanic that I, uh, wanted to discuss briefly is a uh, bonus and penalty dice. So, you know, this is a uh, percentile based game and, uh, uh, you know, we're very accustomed to, okay, I have that as my, uh, skill number and I will throw the dice and get it. And in previous, uh, uh, additions, um, you know, you might be reading a scenario and, and I've done it myself where I'm. Uh, writing a scenario and I might have a scenario, a situation and I might put in as a note to the keeper that, uh, an investigator who's, uh, uh, trying to work on this, let's say, uh, if they've got, um, a background in journalism, even though you're not trying to do a, a library, uh, use or, or, you know, something like that, but maybe because this character has a certain occupation or this character uh, knows uh, a certain person, or this character has already acquired a certain clue, but there's some sort of of uh, scenario where uh, you know there's a a, a possible uh, 
influence on this particular skill, give a bonus. You know, so I might say, you know, if you had that particular skill or you had that particular background, give a plus 10% uh, to, to rolling that skill. And it wasn't a very difficult, uh, I don't think it was a very difficult mechanic to use, uh, but a, a, a change on that now is this uh, concept of the bonus of penalty dice. And it does say that this is typically going to be uh, a mechanic used primarily with opposed dice rolls, uh, say in combat or possibly in chases and that kind of thing. Uh, but um, the bonus and penalty dice, instead of doing a uh, plus or minus to the skill that you're trying to roll, you'll actually throw additional dice. So, um, if it's a bonus dice, uh, you're, you're throwing an additional, uh, tens die. So 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, that thing. Um, and if you're in a bonus die situation, you'll throw, let's say you're only throwing uh, one bonus die. So you're going to throw a total of three dice, two tens units and or two tens dice and one unit die. You throw the dice, you get a, a, a 40, a 20, and a 4. 4 for the units, right? If you're in a bonus situation, you take the lowest of the 10s uh, in order to give you the best possible result. So in that example, I would have thrown a 24 as opposed to a 44. And the inverse is true with the uh, penalty dice. Uh, it would have been the 44 as opposed to the 24. You go with the higher 10s unit. It's actually, it's actually once you get the concept mm-hmm. down, it's a really, really simple mechanic. Uh, but again, I don't think it's going to be uh, restricted to opposed die rolls where one character is versus another character. Um, but, you know, it could again be a scenario, you know, where, no. you know, maybe a character of a certain background gets a, 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 ben, a, a bonus or characters who have been injured. Uh, you know, you got a lame leg or something, you're going to get a penalty die for something like that. So, uh, I think it's just a neat mechanic and I like the, I just, you know, people like throwing more dice. I think it's fun. So, yeah. Yeah. I like that one a lot too. You know, I would even use it for things like, okay, you're trying to, you know, get across the, the frozen lake without falling over, you know, make a dex check. And uh, since it's particularly slick, you know, do mm-hmm. a uh, mm-hmm. penalty die on that. Uh, but then the character that's going out on the ice with uh, cleated shoes uh, or maybe snowshoes with uh, ski poles or something like that, you know, some sort of a equipment designed, yeah, for, exactly. yeah, designed for that then they could get uh, a bonus. terrain, get the bonus die. Or or maybe just the, mm-hmm. the, the you're not throwing a, a, a penalty die, you know, but. But it's always possible to get that bonus. So, yeah. Does it, is that a, uh, mm-hmm. Chad, you said you've run a 7E recently. Did, did bonus dice and penalty dice come in play? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Listen, making a listen roll while the rain was pounding down, uh, get, got a penalty die. I remember, um, yeah, it, it came up a lot. It's really, it's a really useful tool. It's interesting since we play online so much that it does make it a little trickier. People, instead of rolling a 1d100, then have to break it out, do three separate d10 rolls so that we can tell which is the tens place. 
it's it it, it becomes a, sure. it's a little bit it's a little bit mm-hmm. clunky with the online die rollers, but you know as as soon as you figure out how to do it, it's not it's not bad at all. Um, yeah, that, but I but it's a real easy way. I yeah. think I I did some number crunching, and it turns out you know it's whenever you add a die, some it's on a bell curve. The, it becomes a bell curve. Uh-huh. So so the percent that you're adding or, or subtracting depends on the skill that you're ro- the value of the skill that you're rolling. And it peaks out right at 50% where the additional bonus is highest right at 50%. And that peaks at 15%. So if you're, yeah. if it's bonus, you're adding 15% if the skill rolled is, is 50%. And then it tapers off at the extremes to down to 5%. So if you've only got 5% in, you know, in whatever, it's, uh, hey, give me a skill of biology. Um, <laughs> um, and, uh, and you get a bonus die for some reason, maybe it's an easy, for some reason it's an easy roll. You only get 5%. So it goes from five to 10. That makes sense. Yeah. That's, uh, much mm-hmm. more scientific than, uh, than I would uh, follow, but that's awesome. So, yeah. Yeah. I can get kind of fascinating seeing the, how the math actually changes with, percentages and uh, probabilities yeah it's a variable but it's it's good to know because i think i think this becomes when you add a die it becomes an unknown it's like well i don't know how much of a bonus i'm giving whereas in the old way you would just say all right like plus plus 20 percent because or minus 20 percent because you're in fo- you're firing into the fog right um, this way it's harder to tell and, and you're not going to be able to tell on the fly but as a rule of thumb you know 15 percent is the maximum and that's when the skill is at 50 percent yep and i think with the fact that uh, we now have pushing of roles and and what i want to talk about next which is the spending of luck mm. i i like that it couples with that ambiguous bonus that you just mentioned you know in the past it was a you know someone told you you're going to get add 20% to that skill roll or because it's really difficult, take 10% off, you know, um, instead of knowing you're getting that bonus or penalty. Now it's the ambiguousness of, of the dice that you're rolling, you know, and, and there's always the likelihood or possibility, not likely, but possibility that you're, you're going to throw the same, uh, number for the tens unit. You know, I might roll, a 24 and a 24, you know, cause I rolled 20 on both. Of them. I mean, so mm-hmm. It, mm-hmm. It, it, you know, there was no bonus or penalty. It ended up being the exact same. Um, so I like that. I like the, uh, the ambiguity of, of what your uh, bonus or penalty will be. And then it can be modified either by doing a push roll or by, uh, spending luck, uh, which, uh, if I may, I'll, I'll go ahead and roll right into that. So, uh, luck is a resource now, and I, I really like it now. You know, when it, when this was very first proposed, I, and especially the, uh, the mechanics for, re, for, uh, refreshing and refueling your luck, um, uh, I was not on the fence. I was on the other side of the fence. I was like, no, I don't think this would work in the, in the final result. Uh, the way the book will be published, the uh, the spending of luck is is clearly labeled as an optional rule. But I think it's something that, personally, it will be 
in every one of my 70 games uh, because I think it can help supplement the uh, the the pushing roll mechanic. I want to just double check here. I think it said that you there's certain certain instances where you cannot spend luck to to adjust a die roll. Uh, you cannot spend luck to adjust other luck rolls. So if you're going to make a luck roll, you can't you know augment it with uh, luck points. You cannot spend it on damaging, you know, on your damage rolls. You can't spend it on sanity rolls or to uh, on rolls that determine the amount of sanity that's lost, that kind of thing. Uh, so, yeah. So if you've got, if you're pushing a roll, you can combine them together. If you're, if you're going, hey, I want to push that roll and you roll to push and you fail again, spend luck. If you don't want to take that, uh, that uh, uh, forecasted failure. In the example that I gave about leaping from a balcony to a chandelier, because pushing a roll is a second attempt and not just a, a, a metagaming re-roll, if you fail that jump roll to go from the from the balcony to the chandelier, if you want to make it, that is absolutely a spend luck. You know, burn luck points to, to make that roll a success. And once this mechanic got a little bit uh, adjusted and we were we were doing some uh, play testing of uh, the 70 rules i dove head first into this and i just loved this mechanic i i remember i had a character i burned my luck down to 19 points because of this you know i mean there were instances where i was like yeah i'll go ahead and spend 30 some odd points you know to to make that skill roll work but it it was great because you know, mechanically, uh, uh, as you're rolling through a, uh, a scenario and you're, you're going deeper and deeper into this mystery, spending these luck points advanced the game for us. It advanced our investigation and brought us closer to the conclusion. But at the, the other side of that coin is I'm going, my characters, you know, going to the, to the, the conclusion of this adventure with practically nothing to spend in my luck, you know? So I'm going in there extremely unlucky. Uh, and that, that would affect, you know, that becomes my luck score so that if the keeper was to ask me to make a luck roll for my character's life, you know, at that point I was down to 19%. So it's, uh, it's really, really rough. What did, what did you guys think about spending of luck? Yeah. Well, I enjoyed it, um, in Dan's maps game. Um, back when we were doing that, I enjoyed it as uh, on the player side. I am, I am a little not on the fence as a, as a complete judgment, as a final judgment or anything, but I'm a little on the fence. I think it, I might exclude it because it is an optional, right? Absolutely. I mean, clearly optional. Everything's mm-hmm. optional in a role playing game, but yeah, <laughs> you know, um, by the rules, it's optional. So I think. For example, for one shots, I'm not so sure that I'm going to include it because during a four hour session, it uh, I'm not sure the payoff or the consequences are going to be clear enough at the end. It, it'll kind of depend on the scenario and, and I'll have to put my thinking cap on. But I think the presence of push and and luck spending in a single one shot, say, convention adventure might be a little bit much for. Yeah. Well, if you that depends on the feel too. That would put it way up mm-hmm. into the high adventure, yeah. pulpy area. True. You can you know take out the luck spend, and that'll dial it back to being mm-hmm. more 
of a dire situation. And Dan, I liked your advice about, I think I do like it for longer term play or convention play or maybe like mini campaigns. And, and Dan's suggestion of um, making sure you look for opportunities to call for a luck roll you know, in general, as you would, like, do you fall through the floor? Mm -hmm. Do you, you know, just have those mm -hmm. traps available so the consequences become clear throughout so that they learn ahead of time that this is going to be called on. You might really want this later on to be more than 19. So they have to make a meaningful choice between modifying that one role. And yeah, yeah, exactly. It, it if you, if as the uh, keeper, you don't call for luck rolls, and do things that make them actually needed, then spending the luck is just kind yeah. of free eye win points. And that's not the purpose of that. So yeah, you, calling for luck rolls becomes much more important yeah. when luck yeah. spent I, is I know for mine, when I was spending points, I knew the penalty was, well, if I'm in a scenario where I'm going to be dependent upon my luck, I'm, I'm going to be S-O-L. Hey, I need to make a correction to something i said earlier because mm. um, i thought i had read this but i had to dive in a little deeper and and, and refine it luck points cannot be spent on pushed rolls so that right. was that was an error if you choose oh. to do if you choose to push okay. a roll and it fails then it fails you cannot adjust a pushed roll with luck points yeah um in addition uh, to the other uh, things like uh, damage rolls, luck spending, or luck rolls and, and sanity rolls, you cannot spend luck points uh, on uh, criticals, fumbles, or firearm malfunctions. Uh, those are also, you know, the results are whatever the results are. Uh, but uh, I did want to absolutely retract what I had said earlier about uh, if you do a push roll, and then you fail, you know, spending luck, that is incorrect. If you've chosen to do the push roll result, however the dice fall, that's how the dice fall. And if you choose to do uh, luck points on other rolls, then that's fine. So I'm glad you found that. That came up in my game where I had uh, somebody push. I decided to go all in, even though it was a one shot, and just say, let's just play with all the rules and see what happens. And uh, so they had luck and push, even though it was a one, a one shot. And um, somebody pushed and and failed and then said can i spend luck and we kind of went around i couldn't find it in the book really quickly so i just ruled it just doesn't make sense <laughs> you know to be able to do both i mean it should be a push roll should yeah. be you should be risking something you should be yes. all in right you know? yep. yeah 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 yes, apparently mike i'm and Paul sure agree with if that. it didn't come up in play <laughs> testing they were they were already thinking ahead because it yep. just doesn't make sense yeah so i saw that and i wanted to uh to retract my statement and get that get that corrected. Uh, the other thing that I, I like, and this is a change, uh, this is one of the things that I was uh, not a fan of when this was first being you know conceived of and and put out there in the playtest is the way you're recovering your skill points, your your luck points. I, I should say this used to be tied to the concept of connections. And I, I remember in our mm -hmm. play testing, uh, I had a character and I, I had like a, 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 a watch fob, you know, my, my pocket watch fob from a grandfather or something like that. And, and all you had to do, I remember is you just had to invoke. You had to basically say, you know, I'm, 
I, I think about my grandfather and the watch that he gave me and you were, you were being rewarded with, you know, a certain X number of points or whatever. And so I made sure every minute, you know, every, every free opportunity I had, I was, uh, you know, picking a different one of my connections and, and, uh, thematically invoking it somehow just to, you know, artificially get those points back, you know, to, to have them respent. And it was, it was clunky. I, I thought that it was clunky and it was weird and it just, it yeah. did not have a place. And I, and it felt like I was trying to leverage those elements in a, in an artificial manner, which I was, I was doing that on purpose just for game mechanics. Well, the new, the, the, the set of final way to recover luck points is you recover them the exact same way as you would recover points or, or, gain points in any skill you do. And now this says at the end of each play session. So let where yeah, so luck is each session, whereas skill advancement yep, is story the end of a you know, storyline chapter as you, if you will, but with every game session, you roll percentile dice. And if you fail, you know, roll above what your current luck score is, you get to add one D 10 to it. Uh, and if you rolled equal to or less than, there's no improvement. That's a, that's a, that's a game mechanic that we're all familiar with. We've used it for years and it is very easy to fold that mechanic in with the, uh, uh, luck points now that luck is, uh, is a resource as well as a skill. And I think it makes total sense. I also think it's not noted here, but I, I think this is something that, uh, keepers might consider is you could have luck points as a reward so for good role playing uh for achievement oh, of yeah. of uh certain clues that are found something like that you could reward uh a certain number of luck points to certain players based upon what they did you know five here ten there something like that i would keep it very low i would certainly wouldn't go above 10 for any any single action that that a player and his character performed uh and certainly uh i don't think i would reward you know more than you know 15 at the very outside uh for a single player you know as as, as rewarded you know points uh, as opposed to the uh, the failed uh, improvement role, uh, I would say it would be fair just to say that as a uh, reward for something cool, you could just say, "Hey, you can make oh even a in luck roll now." Yeah, sure. Just during play, mm, yeah. yeah. You just give them a bonus luck, yeah. uh, You know, luck recovery roll, and that way you're not giving out specific numbers of points. You just give them the opportunity that, you know, they may or may not. True. I mm-hmm. mean, and the, the risk is always there that they might still get zero, you know, uh, but you can, you know, so I, I think yeah. either would be fine. I, I know for myself, I wouldn't be opposed to say, hey, good job on doing that. Here's five luck points. You know, I, I could I could see myself giving away five on a, yeah. you know, fairly regular basis. But uh but yeah, I think it, it, we could certainly have uh, luck point rewards. I think that would be something good, too. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Then next up, we've got uh, what I'm going to be focusing in on, which is chases. 
This is an all-new mechanic, uh, much like the, the, the push and the bonus penalty and spending luck. This is a, an entire chapter devoted to just this, and it's actually a lot larger than I originally anticipated before diving into it for this. And so this is just going to be kind of a, a, a rough, you know, overview of how the chases are uh, generally meant to work. But I, I love that we have some good chase rules mm-hmm. actually built into the game now. I believe there actually were some chase rules in the previous editions, but they just were not very friendly. They they just they were so minimalist and abstract that it was really hard mm-hmm. to actually figure out how they worked. And this this puts a lot more crunch into it. So basically a chase round is intended thematically to be just as dramatic as a uh, as a combat and so there's a lot of opposed roles there's a lot of uh options here which is what makes this so big chases themselves aren't too bad but what they do is they give options for doing say you've got a foot chase so okay you've got two people who you know one is chasing the other through various environments that's the baseline as the rules were written. And then it brings in things like hazards that they might encounter on the way. And then the and skill use to be able to get through them. Then it includes things like car chases. And so okay, both via both characters in this are in uh, are in vehicles. Alright, well what about a car chasing somebody on foot? And so that's actually kind of covered in there. There's fighting during the chase you've got you know two cars driving down at high speed on the road shooting at each other and then there are options for bringing monsters into the chase so you're in the car trying to escape a uh, bayaki that's flying after you and joining chases in progress there this thing just keeps going on and on it's huge and so i that's when they i'm really loving here is that in horror being chased by the monster that's like that's a classic thing that really has always been necessary in a horror game and i'm really happy to see this it takes a few steps to get things you know put together for it uh there is step one is the setup for the chase you're establishing that Okay, you know, somebody's trying to get away, a chase is done, and if they're on foot, you have each participant make a con roll or a drive roll if they're in vehicles. If they pass it, then they get a plus one to their move score, which their base move was determined during character creation. Or if it's a vehicle, each vehicle has a move score. And if they fail, then it's subtracted one move score. So just right off the bat you can get an idea of who was able to uh, take off quickly then each round it's treated as combat rounds and then you can basically go very simplistic with it of you have you know okay here's a line of dots and this character is at the third dot 
This character chasing them is at the first dot. There's one in between, and trying to close that gap is the objective of the person trying to catch the first one. And, you know, so that way, that first, that first con roll is actually kind of neat because you have the possibility that someone's going to try and get away, but doesn't. If the person wants to run, fails or con roll, and they get a minus one move, and the person that would have been doing the chasing who's standing there passes, well, then that actually eliminates the need for a chase because somebody just kind of tries to take off and the other guy kind of reaches out and grabs him mm. by the collar and says, nope. And, uh, you know, once you get established of, yes, there's now going to be a chase in there, then you go to step three, which is cut to the chase. Place the pursuers lowest at the rear in order positioned as per their differences in their movement rates. So that's where the keeping track using like spacers or dots comes in. And a scrap piece of paper can take care of this just fine. Or if you wanted to get more fancy with it, you could actually have, uh, you know, like uh, yeah. minis laid out or something like that. And if you've got an in-person group, that could be a lot of fun. Uh, you've got uh, place the fleeing characters in order, slowest at two locations ahead of lead pursuer, and others at locations ahead equal to their distance and move. So basically, it determines the or the movement rates determine the order at which these people are because that's you know whoever's faster is going to be up front, and so it, it kind of the movement rates that you have for the characters or vehicles will kind of lay itself out in line. You don't have to try and figure out who started first. Well, no, the movement rates get all that sorted out for you. Then you allocate movement actions. Uh, each uh, participant gets one action by default, and then the difference, um, plus the difference in movement rates between characters and the slowest character in the chase. So they'll get bonus movement actions because they're so far ahead. They have an, a few extra moments to do something else. And those actions can be things like, you know, uh, just trying to get extra distance. It could be, uh, you know, grabbing a trash can and yanking it down behind them. It could be, you know, leaping over a, a low barrier. It could be firing a shot backwards. It could be any number of things. Then, uh, the next step is determining dex order, and then position hazards and barriers. And partly what I'm going by here is I am I have the keeper screen open, and there is a very nice cheat sheet for chases on the oh, yeah. keeper okay. screen. I'll check that out. Oh, nice. Yep. I like the screen, too. We haven't gotten into that, but it's a good screen for reference. Yeah. Yeah, I think they did a really nice job laying it out, and things like chases are one of those, since it's brand new, it needs to be put onto here to make it easily found. And, it's, you know, it has those steps of how the chase generally works, sample barriers and what their hit points are. So, you know, you, you're having a chase and there is a, uh, 
a building ahead with a locked back door, well, that on average is going to have about 10 hit points. So you can see if uh, using your, um, oh, what do they call it, in your build score, you can see if perhaps you might be able to just shoulder block your way through it. Then there's also vehicle options for moving around and taking wounds and shooting at each other. And then chases hazards, barriers, and combats and kind of sums up how to do that, including things like shooting out the tires of a vehicle that's ahead or behind. Mm. Yeah, the the uh, keeper screen is very, very useful for that. Yeah, it's, it's basically you're determining move uh, rates and then comparing it to the different characters. And one thing I like is that each time that there is a movement done, you're essentially going through a different location. And these are obviously locations that would be in a string of, uh, you know, ge- geographically. You know, if you're chasing somebody through town, these are like different blocks. It's all left very uh, loose as far as the actual distance per chase round. But you could say, you know, okay, in this next round, uh, you're going to be coming up to an intersection. Do you want to turn left or right to get away from this guy? Oh, I'm going to go ahead and turn left. And the keeper will throw out the environment changes per each round and say, okay, whenever you turn left, uh, then you are now, you know, you've got the sidewalk straight ahead and there are a whole bunch of uh, flower carts that are kind of in the area here with people trying to sell flowers. And, you know, you can actually get past them easy enough. There are some people around, so you might wind up jostling some people, but I'm not going to give you a penalty to get through here. The running person has the opportunity now to do something with this description. They can run through, they can try and grab a cart and yank it to block the path. They can actually push people over so they're perhaps laying down when the pursuer comes through and they might trip. You know, describing that in a dynamic style is going to be a very important part of how chases work. And something something similar actually was uh, used in uh, Star Wars Saga Edition. They actually came out with chase rules that actually had a very similar flavor and feel to it that I may have to take a look at those again and see if there's, you know, ideas that I can bring in to this. Yeah, I'd like to go through a a really playable chase. Yeah, me too. I look forward to Mm -hmm. uh, to having games with with a nice detailed, you know, set of, uh, of environments that you're running through. Uh, I think I'm, I'm thinking more about foot chases than, than car chases, but yeah. Yeah. Something else I just uh, ran across in the chase is that it even has a, uh, a mention here of characters splitting up in a chase that it's only like a couple of sentences, you know, that, if you do so, you now have an additional chase to track. Basically, it, it does cover it enough to know that, okay, if you have two people who are trying to escape a group of bad guys and they split up, well, now you just simply make a secondary chase chart for the other, you know, fleeing person. So that way they are now separated on their own charts and, you know, fleeing from monsters, fleeing the scene vehicular collisions and then there's a nice big table 
full page table that shows different vehicles mm. and what their movement rates and build points are. Oh, cool. And uh, how many passengers they take. So you can have a chase with a uh, dirigible <laughs> and a uh, bomber. You know, <laughs> it won't be much of a chase because the dirigible moves at 12 and Got a lot the bomber moves at 17. Up. But hey, you know, you you can tell how... Yeah, you can tell how long it would take using this to yeah, actually reach it. Yeah, above, drops a bomb on top of the blimp, boom. And uh, so, yeah, it's this is a very neat thing here. Or And you even have uh, train stats. So a train will move at 12. Then you've got your cars, which seem to... The slowest car listed is at move a 13. So it'd be easy enough to catch a train, but it might take you a little bit because you're only moving a little bit faster. Nice. But that would be kind of neat is, uh, you know, you're in a car yeah, actually right. chasing a train. Or a horse chasing a train. Yes. Tra- train yeah. robbery, right? Yeah, that could be cool. Oh, yeah. Yeah, horse with rider, move 11. There you go. Yeah, there's a lot of action potential, especially if um, if you want, like, you could just call it action or, or pulp, you know, where you really have I mean, great kind of Indiana Jones scenes could come out of the chase scenes, you know? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And the the details just keep going on as I'm scrolling through this. It's and there are tons of examples of how this works. Basically, they have Harvey Walters is being chased by various people in the examples. First, he's being chased off uh, by a <laughs> farmer that he kind of trespassed on oh, his land. <laughs> and then there's uh, ones of Harvey's being Harvey and a group of uh, friends are being chased <laughs> By a group of cultists. And so it actually lays it out bit by bit, showing how it works. So I definitely recommend going through those in, in order to get a feel by using, you know, exact mm-hmm. an actual play art kind of idea. And for all these various bits in the future, we're going to be doing deep dives of where the main topic will just be yeah, one of the... It's just impossible to, to cover every detail of these sections right now. Oh, yeah. Yeah, this is already going to be a really huge episode. It is. <laughs> yeah, so sanity is a bit different. And I encountered this in, in a game where I kind of surprised myself. I had looked at the rules, but skimmed them and thought, these are basically the same. Well, they're not. Um, so for one thing, on a sanity check, it is as normal. It's a percentile and it's uh, based on, you know, it's the stats based on the on POW again and you can't do bonus or penalty dice on sand checks. You can't spend luck points on sand checks. And uh, pretty much a lot of things are as normal. What, so the thing that isn't as normal as it used to be is the control of your character. So I had a scene where somebody lost six points all at once, and I said, there's the magic number. You still have any time somebody fails a sand check, they have what's called a bout of insanity. That's any time. And it is kind of momentary, mm-hmm. and it causes some kind of uh, interesting action, interesting um, setback. So it could be jumping in fright. It could be crying out in terror. It could be an un- involuntary movement, like swerving a steering wheel. <laughs> um, it could be... Yep, it could be faint, it could be freeze, fainting, uh, it could be uh, involuntary combat action. It's kind of those basic categories, fight, flight, faint, freeze. 
Uh, let's see. If you fumble a sanity roll, the character loses maximum sanity points for that situation. So that's, I think, I don't remember if that's new or not. That's but then, oh, I like yeah, I like it. I like it. But then mm-hmm. you go into, so that, that one thing happens and then you have a kind of underlying insanity that lasts for 1d10 hours. But that doesn't mean you lose control of your character. It is now a role-playing opportunity and some mechanics now change like pushing while you're insane is darker (laughs) is different yeah and so it kind of shifts some of the things mechanically and it also strongly encourages that the player role-play this insanity during this time and this could be it's not um a debilitating one so the person is not the player's not out of the scene now um and that's what i i kind of fumbled during the game is i said okay well um you know for some amount of rounds you're going to be babbling to yourself we decided the way i used to do sanity anyways is i said okay well what makes sense for this guy okay he's he's just going to freeze in place okay well let's let's draw that out maybe he's saying a phrase and oh yeah he's saying a phrase uh, a latin phrase that's inscribed on his knife and but it in in Sixth edition, I would have said, okay, you're kind of out of the scene. You're doing that until further notice, right? Or until the rounds uh, go are out. But what I should have done is say, okay, that happens. And now you're in this heightened state of agitation and anxiety for 1d10 hours, which means that you would be role-playing that for you know the rest of a one-shot, uh, potentially. So it's a climactic yeah. scene. So that's a little different as far as how much control you give your character, give your player characters. I like that. I, I like. I have always felt that taking away the opportunity to behave and react to the insanity is um, a little sad. And I like this as kind of a mix where you have the involuntary, and it goes back to a role playing opportunity. Let's see. There's oh yeah, five or more. Okay, and it, it, if you lose five or more then that triggers the the need for an int roll, which is essentially your idea roll, right? Mm-hmm. And if you lose it, you go temporarily insane. So you do have that check first. You have the, the int check first, and then you go into this 1d10 hours of temporary insanity. If you lose one-fifth of your current sanity in a day of game time, that's different. I think it's that's uh, more time than was allowed before. I think it was an hour of in-game time, if I'm not mistaken. Um, yep, and it was an hour. Yeah, so now it's a full day of, of imaginary time. <laughs> Which could happen very easily. Yes, I know. <laughs> mm-hmm. I know, that will... Yeah, opening that up really doesn't hurt anything. Well, it makes it darker. I mean, It means the potential for indefinite insanity is higher. Yeah. And that will last until some kind of recovery. And I'll get into some of the sources of recovery in a bit. The, during this bout of madness, the keeper is encouraged to maybe amend something in a backstory. And this goes back to what used to be called connections. And I don't think there's anything called connections in the, in the new rule set, but you have backstory in your, in your, your character creation. And one of the things you can do during a bout of madness is to corrupt one of these things that is in the backstory, whether it's a treasured, um, aunt or uncle, you know, contact, whether it is a, an ideology that is then challenged. And there's a bunch of examples in here. I think that's, that's kind of fun. It's, 
It's not, yeah. you know, it's not as kind of finicky as the old way of messing with the backstory, but it gives the keeper an opportunity to make the horror really personal to the character. Well, that's cool. Yeah. Again, like creative opportunities. Yeah. It's almost like they had a revelation about something that they thought they knew. Exactly. Right. And it really taps into a kind of unraveling that's not just, oh, you know, generically the cosmos is out to get me or, you know, it's it's very specific to their lives and something that will hopefully generate role play. You know, the next time they see that treasured aunt or whatever, um, they may be suspicious and, you know, it will just change things. So, um, so you, you add five mythos points for your first, uh, loss of sanity from mythos. And this is new for mm-hmm. each bout of insanity from mythos. You add one more to your Cthulhu mythos skill. So it nice. will creep up, you know, over time. And if you think about it, that's a lot of encounters with the mythos. So I don't think it's overpowered to give a little extra mythos skill. No, I don't think so. I think it's actually pretty reasonable. Yeah, you're not going to end up, you know, unless you're reading books. Yeah, you're 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 running into monsters. You're reading books. You're seeing magic being cast. All mm. these things that you know, e- those are the things that are giving you mythos points. And so it only makes sense that yeah. That personal personal direct experience should have some influence on your understanding of the the badness. I like that. It hopefully provides opportunities for um, players to actually be able to leverage that skill more often. I mean that that seems to me it seems like it's yeah. a skill that is you know players really like gaining mm. points in that skill and mm-hmm. then they they almost never get to use it. You yeah. know so. Yeah, and it's usually so low in my yeah. experience. It's been so low that it's like, okay, well, you see this monster, roll your mythos skill to see if you have some insight about what it is. And very rarely does it happen yeah. that well, it's under the I'll try it. I've so. got a 5% in it now. But yeah. now with every bout of madness, if it can go up, you know, tick, 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 mm-hmm. tick, then at least there's a, a slightly greater chance that you can use it. Yep. There's also in the magic rules. There's now a way to use mythos to to um, in another way. I'll get to maybe, but uh, there, there's yeah. another way. You know that, that that can be useful to you, which I think is pretty cool. So just uh, wrapping up insanity here, though. That there, when you have a bout of madness, there are two ways to do it. There's the real time bout of madness where you're sort of on camera. You know where there's a scene. There's also a bout of madness can be triggered when the characters by themselves. And the, the keeper is encouraged to um, summarize in an interesting way. And that could be something like you wake up and find yourself in a strange place. You know, it's it, it's more yeah. of a duration than the just a, a sudden surprise or babbling or, or whatever that first thing is. Um, I kind of like that. That's an interesting way to pull the story forward. You could always make that part of the plot, you know, um, make that 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 bout of madness uh, propel your your story forward. Oh, um, gosh, yes, I, I could right? see I could see for maybe certain one shots, you know, in media res, you open your story, you open your scenario recovering from a bout of madness, you know, you adjust those uh, characters' uh, sanity right at the beginning, maybe even include some, you know, Cthulhu mythos, and then they wake up from being blacked out someplace and, and they start playing the game, you know, 
without any knowledge of what happened before because their characters lost that knowledge, you know, because of mm-hmm. the bad madness, you know. So now the the scenario becomes their rediscovery of what's going on. Right. Exactly. Um, there are manias and and uh, phobias that you can develop. Um, there's a big old chart mm-hmm. of a hundred phobias, which is nice. You can roll percentile on, or you can just pick from your favorite. It is, um, and when you get a phobia, it's ongoing. But what they say is, you know, when you're sane, when you're not in some kind of temporary insanity, that phobia is just, it's role play. It's just a role playing trait, it, which I find players do very well. I, I've never found somebody who underplays their phobia, you know? Yeah. But then if you, if you encounter this phobia while you are insane, uh, it's completely different and you, uh, get a penalty die for trying to suppress, you know, if the, if you have a phobia of spiders and you're trying to unlock a door and there's a spider in the room while you're insane, you will actually have a penalty die just to, to kind of sing yourself through the graveyard, you know, Yay. which I think is pretty cool. Yeah. It's, it deepens the, the effects of this ongoing, you know, 1d10 hours of, of uh, temporary insanity or indefinite insanity. Which, which you need to have treatment for. Um, getting into treatment, there are a couple of options that I think are pretty cool. There's one you can get private help, which would be like a sessions with a doctor. And in that case, you roll a 1D100, or you roll percentile. And if mm-hmm. you are successful, you get 1D3 sanity points back only on a 1 to 95. If you basically botch, you get 1d6 minus on your sanity so there are it it basically make it exactly that there are ways that treatment can make it worse which i think is great (laughs) yeah well it's like a first aid roll yeah you know you fumble a first aid roll and you're gonna hurt yeah so it's a very similar aspect and it's and it's somewhat realistic and here's another thing that especially for the 20s -hmm. that i think is realistic is the other treatment option is the asylum in that case, you roll a percentile, and if it's 1 to 50, you get that 1d3 points back. <laughs> if it is over 50, you min- are minus 1d6, which is quite Ouch. quite a historical accuracy nod. I mean, I don't know about stats, but, you yeah. know, it's basically a 50-50 chance you might get worse. And frankly, <laughs> you know, psychiatric care has only recently been reformed. I mean, like... At, you know, starting in yeah. the eighties, yeah. and that's absolutely true. And yeah, and it's still Abs- not it, nearly where it absolutely needs to be. right. Absolutely, my <laughs> my wife and I recently took a tour of uh, of a, a historical uh, museum mm. for uh, insane asylums. Oh, wow. um, I'm trying to remember the name of it now, but it's in St. Joseph, Missouri. We uh, drove up there and went to this uh, museum, and it was amazing uh and it was talking about uh in particular for from missouri um the the four they were they were numbered off it was um state lunatic asylum number one state Mm -hmm. lunatic asylum number two and by the time they got to number four building it they they were starting to change the name and then eventually all the names got you know changed something much more pc but i mean Mm -hmm. it was it was things like you know, when people would bring family members, they would say, give us the clothing you want them buried in. Because uh, nine times out of ten, people did not leave. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, prior to 
uh, I think it was saying World War Two. Yeah, I don't think it was the Great War. When 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 the soldiers were coming back from World War Two, and a lot of them were were you know what we now know of as having uh, PTSD. These men were were going to these um, <clears throat> and in order to make room, they just they just started dumping people that were committed, and and especially if the family members just you know stopped keeping track of them these people were just being dumped out into the streets to make mm. room for uh for the soldiers and these asylums were so overpacked i mean they said that you know the facilities would be built for you know 200 bed facility or something and then they were they were holding like a thousand people you know they were they were three times four times over over stocked with people than what they initially were were designed to hold, mm. and uh, yeah, it was just it was crazy. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, fifty percent chance of getting uh, help there. Okay, that's that'll be generous based upon what mm-hmm. I've just recently seen. So, pretty crazy. Yeah, honestly, and they mm-hmm. do say that you can decide the keeper can just decide per institution what that that level is. So you can decide that maybe let's uh, say Arkham Asylum is um, supposedly the best. You can make it a 70 if you wanted to. Um, I personally, like John, would probably make it a 20 or something like that. Yeah. And you could actually have, you know, a come up with like reputations for certain Mm -hmm. places that may not fit the actual numbers. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. Yep, so players could be shopping around. The reputation is fantastic. (laughs) Yeah, exactly, because I think that would be great if uh, investigator teams actually like started looking and and shopping around for okay, this is the place that uh, looks the best for potential yeah. recovery of of you know bad times, and it winds up that that one you know has like a ten percent recovery mm-hmm. rate. They're just really good at doctoring the right. books. I love it. <laughs> oh, and you gosh. know, like investigations into. Um, mental health did not happen really until much later no. as far as actually tracking mm-hmm. outcomes and that kind of thing. So you, that's absolutely works well is that people didn't really know what was happening in the asylums. And, a, uh, you know, this yeah. is an aside. I, uh, before going to this museum, I uh, did not really know what a lobotomy was mm-hmm. or, or, you know, how it was performed. I mean, my, my, introduction to lobotomy was was the reanimator movie you know so i was uh conditioned to think that it's a drill straight through the forehead or something right and i had no idea that it's actually what they they call it now uh, an ice pick lobotomy where they they'll pull open your eyelid put an ice pick on the inside of your eyelid right at the bridge of your nose and then tap it in there because that's where the bone is thinnest to get up into the brain area. And then once they get this ice pick stuck up in your brain like that, where it's gone through uh, uh, at the corner of your eye, that becomes the fulcrum of this lever. And the, the doctor on the doctor in air quotes, uh, he's just wiggling. He's just wiggling that eye pick. And so it's swinging madly vertically up and down because they, they try to get it to where the pick would go. Uh, in the space between the two hemispheres of your brain. And then they start wiggling it vertically to try and start just breaking synapses that connect between the two, between the two hemispheres. But, you know, they could just as easily be 
digging into one hemisphere, you know, and just kind of, it was just so barbaric. And there was a guy, I have to do the research again to, to get this doctor's name, but this guy, there was this one doctor and he made it his, I'm going to be on a quest. I'm going to cure, again, air quotes, cure people, you know, up and down the Eastern seaboard. And I'll do, you know, X number of hospitals and X number of time period. And he was just on a day-to-day basis. He might hit three hospitals and people would just strap, you know, strap your, your most violent cases to the gurney and line them up. No OR, no anesthesia. Uh, These people are just, they're just literally strapped down. And when the wiggling, when the thrashing stops, he knows that it's time to remove the, uh, remove the ice pick that he's done enough uh curing that now they're they're a uh, a calm person and you know you would think this would be you know the mortality would be you know incredible on this but apparently he only had like four people die on the table while he was doing this and and when they would die he would just collect his instruments and drive away and go to the next hospital no police were called and no family were ever in the, I mean, he was doing these, he would do these, uh, lobotomies without family consent. I mean, people, if they were keeping track of their family members, they would just show up the next weekend. And instead of them being, you know, angry or, you know, violent in any way, they're just, uh, quietly sitting in a corner now drooling all over themselves. Just crazy stuff. Yeah. Yeah. The history of, uh, mental health is a dark one for sure. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, a couple of optional rules, and then I think I'll put that to bed is, uh, that you, there's something called an insane insight, which I think is kind of cool, where a bout of, a bout of mm-hmm. insanity can actually result in s- some useful information <laughs> where the character actually, it's like a little idea, free idea role, and you can frame that however you want, but it's, uh, you know, it's so, you're encouraged to do something that fits with the plot and that maybe you can insert a clue that uh, that the player can then, you know, deal with. So that's kind of fun. Oh, man, I love that idea. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's uh, it gives one all kinds of ideas. And then uh, another optional rule is you can become mythos hardened when an investigator's uh, mythos skill rises above a value of uh, his sanity score score yeah so it's like a threshold where they meet right a turning point can be reached and then your uh, the, in, the investigator understands the universe differently you can talk about how that that will play out role playing wise but um it means that your sanity losses are now halved um, no matter you know yeah. which is pretty interesting and i would posit that this is actually a really good way to explain how your antagonists in the games can still function. Yep. Yes. Yeah. And it's a, definitely. So this is a great And it's a fun, I do too. It's a fun, it's just a little paragraph too, but it's a fun opportunity in the game if you're running a long enough, I mean, it's hard to imagine this happening, but, uh, you know, especially if the mythos skill is going higher with each, you know, is ticking up, as you said, that they, they meet in the middle and it provides us great, mm-hmm. again, opportunity, a role playing opportunity. Hey, you are now different. Oh, yeah. And as a player, I would love to reach this. You know, I would love for my investigator to reach a point where they really have to pivot their total understanding. I sort of 
I think a lot of us do that anyway, right? At some point, you're starting to, after a certain amount of encounters, you're just imagining yeah. that's the truth, right? But I love that this gives a, a prompt to to play it out. Yeah, exactly. And it gives a mechanical thing that goes along with it of, you know, your sand losses have because you're no longer, it, you would be more surprised that something turned out to be a mundane thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this is a terrific little piece. I really like yeah, this a lot. that one jumped out at me. Um, there's one last uh, optional rule on sanity is that you can ramp up sanity point loss to by asking the player to roll sanity loss for each monster and then use the highest number rolled. So instead of normally you become inured by you know multiples of the same monster, you don't roll for sanity each time, but this is a way to make it even worse so that uh, you're not rolling for each instance, but it is kind of maximizing. You roll each time. You know, if you face 10 deep ones, you would be rolling 10 times and choosing the highest. Yeah. Oh, okay. Because I I remember in the the old rules... And that actually still works with... Well, I was going to say, in the old rules, if you had a a large number like that, uh, you would do your sanity roll, and if you failed, you would just automatically lose the max instead of rolling for how much sanity you could lose. Oh, okay. That, in the old rules, that's what they suggested. Yeah. You know, like, there was that, I remember the, uh, the, the narrative description in the, in like the, you know, sixth edition or the 5.5 edition. Harvey looks up into the sky and sees a, a flock of Biaki flying overhead mm. because it was a flock and not just a single, uh, in that narrative description, the, the character failed at sand roll and, and that character lost max sanity for whatever it is to, to view a Biaki versus randomizing what it would have been for a one or maybe two. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I think that's actually a pretty good approach, pretty good solution anyway. So this is an option or rule and yeah. I might. I might only put it in play if it's like four, because I imagine ro- rolling ten times to pick the best, the, the highest one is sort of mm-hmm. silly, right? At some point, you're just gonna. Yeah, this yeah. seems like a good rule if you're if you're not, you know, past that point where it's just ridiculous, mm-hmm. but you're not you're not at one or two, you're at that you know four, five, or six number. That might be. Yeah. It might be fun at that point to do this. Yep. Yeah. And it still would work hand in hand with the bit next to it getting used to the awfulness. Mm-hmm. Where once you reach the maximum sand loss for a given type of creature, you're like, you're used to them for at least a little while. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. So that's, that's the sanities. Which I, I like. That's a good one. Yeah. <laughs> We'd love to hear from our listeners, and we have a lot of different ways you guys can reach out to us. Our main contact email address is feedback at mu-podcast.com. We also have a Twitter account at mu underscore podcast, and you can join our IRC channel on the feedback page of the website. We have a Providence, Rhode Island voicemail number, area code 401-400-0MUP. That's 401-400-0687. Or you can use the SpeakPipe link located on the website. Ask us a question, leave us a line, or say who you are, and I'm enrolled at the Miskatonic University podcast. And give us a hearty go pods for our home team, the Fighting Cephalopods. And our website is mu-podcast.com. 
You can find our show notes for this episode at mu-podcast.com slash 68. That's the numero 68. And our forums are at mu-podcast.com forward slash campus. Come join the community and be a part of the conversations. Thank you for joining us for another episode. Class is dismissed. The Call of Cthulhu role-playing game is property of Chaosium, Inc. The written works of H.P. Lovecraft are held in the United States public domain. All other works mentioned in this podcast are the property of their respective owners. Original content of this show is copyright of the Miskatonic University podcast under a Creative Commons attribution non-commercial share-alike license. Uh, and then the last... Bless you, or whatever you say with hiccups. Um, <laughs> it's kind of those basic categories: fight, flight, faint, freeze. But poop, huh? Poop. <laughs> Did you just say? Poop? <laughs> yep. <laughs> sure. I, I have failed standard rolls every I day. I think that is a perfectly reasonable response to given a lot of the things that happen in Call of Duty. You just stand there and cry for yourself. <laughs> Yes, well, it's contextual. It makes sense for your game, and uh, yeah, absolutely, go for it. Um, they they give some examples. What, what about not... during a podcast? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>